learning how to be more mindful is about you. It's not about making the system work better. It's not about your health service functioning better and you having less sick days. It's about you feeling good. It's about you learning how to sit with uncomfortable feelings. It is just about you. And we know from the evidence that the flow on effects are positive. Hi, Dr. Emily Amos. Thank you so much for joining me on MDA Nationals Junior Doctor Wellbeing Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, so if you don't mind, I will actually uh, change things up a bit uh, and let you introduce yourself because you do wear many hats. Would you mind telling our listeners uh, a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a GP, my, that's my specialty, and I also wear the hats of being an international board certified lactation consultant, as well as a registered yoga teacher and a registered meditation teacher. And in the last few years, I've probably been using those last two hats quite a lot more than some of my other hats. <laughs> but I run retreats for doctors. So I teach mindfulness and self-care and I do that mostly in retreat formats. So short, um, very intensive sort of immersive experiences. That's really cool. Uh, but I guess I have something a bit controversial to put to you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are skeptics around retreats because at the end of the day, when you go to retreat, you have all of your stresses removed from you. You're not in your usual environment. You don't have to prepare your own meals, your beds made for you, you know, things like that. And mm -hmm. you get to do all these things like yoga and, you know, mindfulness, all these wonderful things. But then you go back to reality and reality is not anything like a wonderful, beautiful retreat in you know, some hinterland in Cairns or something <laughs> like that. And yeah. I, I noticed the retreats have also become increasingly popular in recent years. What's the purpose of mindfulness retreats? Like what are some things that you teach or uh, doctors can learn at these retreats? So it's a really good question, actually. And I think it comes up for a lot of people. It certainly came up for me. And it's it's a really valid point because... It, you're right, you know, they are removed from real life in a way. And that's part of the allure and actually the benefit I see it. And I think it's about really framing expectations when you come in. So what we're not, we're not claiming that this sort of world we create in this space that we hold on a retreat is your normal everyday life, but that doesn't make it not valuable and there's a lot of these things that we talk about. We talk a lot about self-compassion as sort of the underpinning guiding principle uh, that guides the way I practice and I teach mindfulness. And the compassionate way to approach this would be to say, you know what, it's actually really hard to swim when you're drowning. And for most of us in our day-to-day -day lives, we are drowning. You know, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed, we're anxious, we're busy. We've got demands pulling us in every direction. And then we go, okay, well, I should do some yoga or I should practice mindfulness or I should meditate. And it's just like knocking ourselves over the head with a frying pan. You know, we're, we're so overwhelmed. We're so busy. We're so exhausted. And what do we do? We add another thing to our to-do list. We tell ourselves I should be doing more when in fact you should be doing less. And the retreat format, it kickstarts things because it just gives you a window of space and time where you are doing less. And in that space that's created and held for you, you can start to then put in that framework of, okay, well, maybe now I can learn that basic of 
self-compassion. I can learn how mindfulness fits into my life. And yes, it is hard to take that back into my life, but it's actually much harder to try and learn it and integrate it into my life when I'm essentially drowning in my day-to-day life as it is. I really like your description of drowning uh, because (laughs) I certainly felt that way when I was working in a hospital setting less so now in GP land because I guess it's shit that I don't mind dealing with Um, and you know having gone through a training program probably helps but let's say if a doctor is really seriously um, you know really burnt out like they really are drowning and they are looking at perhaps taking time away from work and you know should they really be using the one week leave that they had to fight tooth and nail to get on a retreat or, you know, going on holiday, perhaps somewhere in the Maldives or something. <laughs> I mean, like you said, um, you know, certainly uh, mindfulness is something that's very much a valuable skill to learn, but is learning it at a retreat um, effective? And if so, talking about bringing it back to real life when they go back to reality in hospital, what are some ways a junior doctor can best implement what they've learned? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty individual. You know, everyone learns in different ways. But the way I see it is there's certainly, there's, there's value to be gained from immersing yourself in something in that sort of short time frame. Even if it is just to kickstart the learning that then you'll take and, and keep moving forward with. And the retreat format, like we said, gives you just that sort of window of time and space where you have removed external influences and those external stressors a little bit. We're cooking for you, you're being cared for, but you're also receiving a lot of education. So I guess my retreats, we call them a retreat, but they really are quite education heavy in the sense that there's a lot of experiential learning. We do a lot of guided meditations. We talk a lot about our experience of mindfulness and also how we can bring self-compassion into our world as a doctor because medicine isn't the most compassionate world for those who work within it. And in a lot of ways, our own ability to internalize a compassionate voice or the voice of the compassionate observer that we talk about when we practice mindfulness it gets beaten out of us. And one of the things I personally have found in my journey, sort of on that medical treadmill and then through the other side into getting my fellowship and now sort of moving on and burning myself out is that it can be really hard to admit vulnerability and to put your hand up and say, look, I'm really struggling. And, you know, you can go on your holiday to the Maldives. You can sit on the beach. You're still there with your problems all alone, you know, mulling over everything that you've brought with you from the hospital or from work or wherever it is that you come from. And ultimately, it's all still there when you go back. So if you do have a week's leave, I would sort of suggest very gently that there are some really constructive ways to use such a short period of time. And one of the main focuses of our retreats is actually breaking down that medical hierarchy. You know, we are all there because we all struggle with this. We all happen to be doctors. It doesn't matter whether we're at consultant level, junior doctor level. We've had doctors who are in training programs right up to doctors who are on the verge of retirement come to our retreats. And we're all there because we struggle with these things. And one of those core components of mindfulness is that idea of common humanity. It can be really easy to forget our common humanity. We can feel very alone with our struggles when we are just you know, head down, working hard day to day, 
and just burning the candle at both ends and giving everything to our job. So coming on a retreat with other doctors who understand this, but also within a space where we're breaking down that hierarchy and really providing a safe space to start exploring vulnerability within medicine in a way without sort of oversight and worry that APCA is going to come and get you or that people are going to think you're a bad doctor. You know, we talk about those fears that we have and what we're dealing with in a day-to-day. These don't make us a bad doctor. These make us human. And when we're on a retreat, on these on the retreats, the whole heart of medicine retreats that we're running, you're a person before you're a doctor. You know, we're really big on reminding you that although we're all doctors there, when we're here, we're focusing on our, our common humanity. We're people first. I like that. I think it is very important to be able to share and exchange stories as part of learning. And I think that it hasn't helped that throughout the pandemic we are working in um, well maybe not so much I guess in GP land we've always just worked in a consult room on our own but particularly for hospital doctors and junior doctors who are so used to working in a very team-like environment with a lot of contact with their peers or even their superiors, registrars, things like that. The pandemic has really driven that wedge and, and isolated lots of doctors. Mm. Even further, it's everyone second guessing, you know, whether they should go out for dinner with another fellow doctor because they're so worried of then making someone else sick or, you know, um, becoming sick themselves, things like that. So uh, mm. it is very much beneficial to, I think, come together almost like a version of a bailing group or mm. thing in the UK um, a really big thing that they do there is uh, I think they call it mess in the UK where the doctors have their doctor's room and that's really where doctors exchange war stories and they sort of <laughs> leave their hierarchy at the door um, and connect um, so I think that's a wonderful way to do it, to learn mindfulness. But what if a junior doctor can't afford the time off nor have the financial means to attend a retreat? What other ways can they learn mindfulness techniques? So there's some really good online courses that are free. So Monash University, I tutor mindfulness to first-year medical students at Monash as part of the health enhancement program. And uh, Professor Craig Hassard, who runs the program and has run it since I was there as a student as well, <laughs> He has an online course called Mindfulness for Peak Performance through FutureLearn, uh, and you can look that up through the Monash University website. And that's free. It starts periodically throughout the year, but that's a really simple way to be introduced to the concepts of mindfulness. The thing about mindfulness is that we, I guess as doctors, certainly when I learned it, I tried to really intellectualise it. We're so used to studying and we're used to doing everything perfectly and getting everything right. And when you, when you come to mindfulness, a lot of people treat it like it's another thing they can do perfectly. It's another thing they can get an A in it or A plus even, you know, that we can, we can be the best at. And the ironic thing is you literally can't do it perfectly because all we are noticing is what's going on in the present moment. And if what's going on for us is uncomfortable, that's what we're noticing. If what's going on for us is comfortable and, and we're really feeling good with it, then that's what we're noticing. There's, there's nothing more or less to it and that simplicity sometimes I think for very high achieving perfectionistic type a kind of people which I know medicine attracts I'm certainly one of them it can be very difficult to sort of I guess relax into that simplicity and to see it for what it is and 
if you are someone who's trying to approach mindfulness on your own or through guided apps or through online courses, I think that voice, that compassionate observer voice, constantly reminding yourself, it's okay, you can't get this wrong. And I often say on retreats when I'm doing guided meditations, you know, it's never too late to start again. Each moment is a new moment to notice. So it's never too late to start that process of learning again. And one of the core principles of mindfulness is that of having a beginner's mindset. You know, I've never existed in this moment before, neither of you. As much as we want to be perfect and do everything to the highest of our abilities, we've never existed in this moment. So every new moment is a new chance to sort of notice how am I feeling in this moment? What am I dealing with? What's coming up for me? And this sort of stuff, it can be hard to do on your own. It can be quite confronting to do on your own. So whether it is a retreat format, and certainly a big part of our retreats is that sort of nurturing guidance and that voice of the compassionate observer. So when we create this space of a retreat, it's really about making the space feel less intimidating so that whatever comes up within it and within you isn't quite so scary. But these sorts of things can be done with a psychologist or a counsellor. You can see, you can go to group meditation classes, a skilled meditation teacher. So um, I'm a registered meditation teacher with Meditation Australia, and that's a really good way to find a skilled meditation teacher. So you could go to group meditation classes, whether they're online or in person, and you can have this sort of space and, and voice of a more compassionate observer around you as you're learning and as you begin to sort of feel more comfortable with that process and the, and the process of meditation and being mindful you internalize that voice and that becomes your sort of inner voice yeah I really like how you pointed out there's no perfect way of doing this because one of the most common things that I hear from patients when I bring up the idea of mindfulness they kind of go oh I tried that it doesn't work and then I'm like okay what do you mean it doesn't work and at the core of it, you know, I eventually work out. It took me a few goes with different patients to finally work out, you know, what was going on and, and what I was missing the mark on. And it was because <laughs> people really associate the word mindfulness with, oh, I have to have a completely and utterly silent and empty mind. <laughs> yes. That isn't the point. Even the Dalai Lama can't do that, you know? So I finally sort of caught on. And even for myself, I had never really articulated, you know, like I would do the guided meditations, but subconsciously I kind of understood the concept of just constantly trying to bring myself back to the present. But I just never got around to articulating. The whole point is you hear your mind chattering and then you acknowledge it and that's okay. And that's it the point of the exercise yeah it's the beauties in the simplicity isn't it yeah, exactly so um, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really important point and I'm sure that if a lot of my patients have misinterpreted what mindfulness meditations mean uh, would not be surprising if a lot of junior doctors have misinterpreted um, why there's been a lot of promotion around you know resilience and mindfulness practice and things like that I I understand there's a lot of frustration going on around, well, the hospital won't fix itself, but is trying to make us do more, mm, you know, yeah. as an excuse to not fix its issues. But at the end of the day, all of this is actually evidence-based, like this stuff actually mm. works. 
So um, yeah, just wondering if you had any final parting words to people who are very much resistant or hesitant to the idea around how mindfulness can actually benefit them on an individual level. Um, because to me, it's if you can't change something, then focus on what you can change. Yeah. And I mean, that's the basis of ACT. So acceptance and commitment therapy is very much based in sort of working out what we can change and, be, and learning how to let go of those things that, that are outside of our circle of control. But what I say a lot is it's not the job of a mindful and self-aware individual to compensate for systemic failures. And that's something that I'm really, really big on, on making very clear that when you sandwich mindfulness training with resilience training, I feel like it's missing the point a little bit because we don't practice mindfulness for the outcome. The outcome's always secondary. It's the process that's the point. So if you happen to increase your ability to deal with the day-to-day stresses of your life because you practice mindfulness and meditate, you increase your sort of baseline level of being mindful, great, awesome, fantastic. It's not why you're being mindful. We've been mindful because simply that, that process of being mindful of slowing down, noticing that feedback within our body that certain situations give us, learning how to acknowledge that and sit with it, come alongside uncomfortable feelings. You know, in this modern world, so many of us have learned to distract ourselves from uncomfortable feelings. You know, we eat, we scroll, we hop on social media, we do all sorts of things because we, we don't like feeling uncomfortable, whether it's sadness, hunger, anger, you know, any, any number of uncomfortable feelings. We have learned over a very long time and society certainly sort of drums this into us we learn to distract ourselves from them. And so coming into the present moment and being mindful means that there's going to be uncomfortable feelings there when we get there. And just simply very offhandedly saying to people, practice mindfulness, it's evidence-based, it'll help you. It's, it's a very trite recommendation because it doesn't acknowledge that in the present moment, we're likely to encounter uncomfortable things. And if we keep coming back into that present moment, we're not using our normal coping strategy of distracting ourselves from that. So Mindfulness really needs to be sandwiched with nurturing, compassion. And then as the extension of that, as you start to be nurtured yourself and learn what compassion feels like, you can then start to internalize that and practice self-compassion. And this is what mindfulness needs to be sandwiched with, not resilience training. (laughs) So if you end up more resilient, fantastic. But learning how to be more mindful is about you it's not about making the system work better it's not about your health service functioning better and you having less sick days it's about you feeling good it's about you learning how to sit with uncomfortable feelings it is just about you and we know from the evidence that the flow-on effects are positive so it is evidence-based you're right but that's not the point the process is always the point thank you for that that has made it even clearer for me now (laughs) Emily, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.